Let me begin this morning by saying welcome again to worship. It's great to be here with you. I want to say welcome and good morning to those of you who are joining us by video right now. Some of you are in our contemporary service or joining us online. And I'm really glad that you're here, that we have this opportunity to be connected together, to learn from the scriptures together, to learn some important things about how to read the Bible in the first place. We're in the last week of a four-week series right now where we've been practicing reading the Bible, recognizing that this can be hard, that some of us don't know how to find our way around in the Bible, don't know what to make of it, how these old ancient stories can connect with our lives, or maybe having seen some examples of how that's happened in not-so-helpful ways in the past, and we want to learn how to do that in a way that leads us toward life in Christ and life in the way of Christ together. We read, we've been practicing this together. We've been just reading some passages and asking ourselves, what are we learning here? What are we learning about God? What are we learning about our lives together? We've read two Old Testament passages, and after today we will have read two New Testament passages. We learned a couple weeks ago from the ancient prophet Isaiah, some words that God spoke to people long ago through a prophet that addressed our lives to. Last week, Pastor Angie taught us from a couple stories from Jesus' life taught us especially about the value of reading, not just for information, but for transformation, that we study to approach the living Jesus in our lives. And today we're going to learn how to read some of these letters that are at the way back of the Bible, that are kind of the second half of the New Testament. And I'm going to share with you a reading from what has become one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's this obscure, tiny little letter in the back of the New Testament called Philemon. Hardly anybody reads Philemon, but it's become one of my favorites because it's such a great insight into this kind of practical situation in the early church. And I think it's a witness to how the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our lives in the most basic stuff. So we're gonna read that a little bit later. But before we do, I wanna pull back and set a little context. A couple things we haven't had a chance to talk about yet in this series, and it has to do with how do you find your way around in the Bible? For many of us, I think this is sort of one big, undifferentiated mass of stuff, right? All these books, all these stories, all these ancient things, and, and what's in there and how do, you find your, how do you find it? Would you take out this study guide? It's in your worship bulletin this morning in both of our worship venues. If you're joining us online, this is downloadable along with the message, so you can find that there. And there's a little extra flap on the study guide this week. It's folded over on the back, and it says, what's in the Bible? And it's got two sides, one side for the Old Testament and one side for the New Testament. And I thought it might help just to take a little look at what, what are all of these 66 books that are in the Bible? And there are 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. If you look on this sheet here, you'll see in the Old Testament. Let's just start there. It's not all that complicated. There are three kind of groups of things, three kinds of things in the Old Testament. About the first half, the first 17 books, are what you could just call the, the story of Israel. And maybe if I had a little more print space, we would have written the story of Israel in relationship with the world. It's a story of God's special relationship with the people of Israel. And we learn all about that in the Old Testament, through whom it was always God's intention to reach and bless and be in relationship with the whole world. And, and we can read kind of the history and read the stories in those books. And then there's a few books in the Old Testament that we might just call the writings of Israel. And these are poems and songs and pieces of philosophy and wisdom. And those writings, they kind of come from the time of the stories before that. They're not the next thing, but they're just separated out. During all these stories, what were they writing? What were they sharing? What were they praying? And it kind of helps us see the life of God's people thousands of years ago. And then the last part of the Old Testament, it happens to be about 17 books again, are the prophets of Israel. Oftentimes, normal, everyday people, sometimes 
rather eccentric people, sometimes normal everyday people like the rest of us. And God reached them and said, I, I want you to send a message to the rest of my people and, and tell them about me. And sometimes they're messages of real encouragement and comfort and promise. And sometimes they're messages of challenge and return to me and stop what you're doing and go this way instead. But these are words of God through prophets to the ancient people of Israel, many of which we can still read for our edification today. There's kind of three groups of things in the Old Testament. You can see them there. And if you flip over to the New Testament, you can see the books of the New Testament. There are 27 of them there. And again, there are kind of three, three different kinds of writings in the New Testament. The first four books in the New Testament are the life stories of Jesus, four different biographies of Jesus. And they tell the story of his life from just a little bit different angle, each one, a little different perspective. You can imagine if you were telling somebody's life story and I told the life story of the same person, we might tell it a little differently. We would bring more things to the front or different things to the front. We'd have different points they wanted you to get. That's kind of how this is. I heard somebody describe this once as taking a diamond with at least four sides and just turning it and looking at it from different sides and it reflects light differently, maybe in different ways. Four biographies of Jesus. And then there's this book right in the middle called the book of Acts, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. This is the stories, the earliest history of the first Christians. After Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, the Christians kept doing stuff. They kept living. This was the beginning of the movement. And some people like to say this book should be called the Acts of Jesus or the Acts of the Holy Spirit in his church. And we can read that. Some people you may know or some of you may have heard that Acts is really volume two of Luke. The same guy wrote both of those books. And so it's kind of like volume one, what Jesus did on earth, volume two, what he's still doing in the church. And we might consider ourselves volume 2B or something. We're continuing to live that story. And then the whole rest of the New Testament, with maybe a slight exception, basically everything else are letters. They're letters either between churches or really in, the most, in most cases, they're letters from church leaders, from early church pastors to their congregations, from missionaries to little Christian communities, sharing the gospel with them, reinforcing what they taught, helping them to understand how to navigate the just real practical questions they have of how they were gonna share life together, what kind of relationships they were gonna have, how they were gonna interact with the world, how they could believe and practice as Christians in the, in the questions of their everyday lives. And that's the last several books, the last list of books there. And Philemon, you'll see, is number 18 on that list. I think it's about the 10th book from the end of the New Testament. That's the one that we're gonna be reading today. We're gonna find that it's a letter from this ancient church leader, Paul, to a guy, and uh, I'll say more about that in a minute, to a guy named Philemon. And maybe just let me say one more thing about how we got these things, right? Somebody or a whole bunch of somebodies wrote these books and letters and songs and poems a long, long time ago. The, the books in the Old Testament were written, depending on which book you're talking about and what history you like to study, between 2,200 and 3,500 years ago, a long time ago, over 2,000 years ago, up to three and a half or more thousand years ago. And until, until not that long ago, the oldest texts that we had, the oldest evidence, the oldest stuff we had found archeologically was only about 1,000 years old, came from about the year 1,000 AD. And then, and those, that was what we used to know what the Old Testament said. And then in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, some, uh, a Bedouin uh, shepherd from the southern Israeli desert found some scrolls in a cave. Have some of you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Have you ever heard that? Kind of famous, people like to wonder what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, among other things, there were texts of the biblical books in the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And there, was, there were older texts of all the books in the Old Testament, no New Testament, because the people who wrote them didn't know Jesus. They were from about the same time or a little bit earlier than Jesus. But there were, there were copies of all the books in the Old Testament except Esther. And what, the, what we found in those old copies of the Old Testament books was that they were nearly identical, and they were 2,000 years old instead of 1,000 years old. And it was amazing to see the real precision and the care that had been used in handing down these biblical texts where you could see two samples of things a thousand years apart and see them being nearly identical. And it gives us lots of reason to be, have lots of confidence in the care and the faithful transmission of those Old Testament texts. Now, now the New Testament is kind of a little bit of a different story. The New Testament, we don't have just a couple of manuscripts from 1,000 and 2,000 years ago. We have thousands of manuscripts. We don't have any of the originals. We don't have the letter that Paul sat down one day to write to Philemon or when Luke sat down to write the story of Jesus. No one's ever found the originals of any of those things. Instead, they began to be copied widely and they began copies of copies and copies for different churches and they spread all over the Christian world. And we have thousands of different ones that we can measure against one another and see if they're faithful, were the copying faithful. And then we can put together and say, this, this is the original based on all the fragments that we found in the desert and in different monasteries and all, all the archaeological finds. And some of those manuscripts are quite old. They date back in some cases to the 100s and more to the 200s and 300s AD. We have these ancient texts, these ancient copies that show us what the books of the Old and New Testament were like. And that's what we have, that's what we're reading today when we read the letter to Philemon. And I'd like to begin doing that with you now. That's enough of this general history. Let's practice together. If you have a Bible with you, this is a great time to take it out. If you would like to use one and don't have one, our ushers in both venues are going to come up the aisles right now. We have some Bibles that are available for you to borrow during the service today. You can always grab one in the back of the room uh, when you come in for worship here. And you can use one during the service today. And then afterward, just set it on the rack in the back of either this traditional sanctuary or our contemporary worship venue. And you or someone else can use it next week. Or you may really prefer to read this electronically, and that's fine. This is when you can take out your cell phones in church. Go ahead. Uh, please, no Facebook or whatever else. Unless I say something brilliant, then you can tweet that. That's okay. Um, but we advertised some uh, Bible apps that many people use. Uh, both Bible Gateway and YouVersion are real common Bible apps. I have both of them uh, on my phone. And that's another way that you can find and read some biblical texts. Today we're going to be reading the letter to Philemon. And if you want to find it in your Bible... It's about this far back. Can you see that? Like way near the back. It's 10th last from the end, and it's only on one page, so it's super easy to page by it while you're going. The last book in the Bible is called Revelation. If you go back a little bit in from there, you might land in Hebrews. That's kind of a longer book. This is right before Hebrews. But lots of these things at the end are pretty short, so you'll skip over a lot of them. And if you're using that Quest Bible that we just handed out, it's on page 1761, page 1761. All right, have I stalled long enough? Have you found it? Can we read it now? <laughs> Let's practice reading this uh, book of Philemon, which we will soon find is really a letter. We're gonna read the first few verses. Here's how, here's how it goes. And we're gonna do this together in such a way as that you could do this on your own, alone, or with your growth group. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Ephia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All right, this is the greeting, right? This is the from and the to section. Nowadays, most letters, if you ever have written a handwritten letter anymore or a printed letter, they start with the to at the top and the from at the bottom. Honestly, I like their way of doing it better. I like knowing who it's from right at the top, but that's what email is for. It has a sender address, right? And so if we got the from, we got the to, we can notice a couple things here. It's from, we're gonna see in this letter that it's from Paul to Philemon, but it's also more than that. It's from two people, and it's to a whole bunch of people, not just to Philemon, but also to Aphia and Archippus. I don't know, it could be Philemon's wife and son, could be a family, maybe some other close relationships here. They don't, it doesn't say in the letter. And also to the whole church that meets in your home. Now, that is, probably is a small group. It's probably 10, 20, 30 people maybe. Uh, but still, it's a letter written from a person to a person, but also from a group to a group at the same time. And that's an interesting tension that we're going to see coming out later in the letter. We can also notice, or we can infer, that Philemon is probably at least upper middle class in his world. He probably has some degree of wealth. He has a house that the church can meet in, right? And even if it's 20 or 30 people, most first century homes, like many of our homes, can't really hold 20 or 30 people, right? But Philemon's could. He had a bigger house than most people, and so we think that Philemon probably had some wealth or some status in the community. All right, let's, let's keep reading and find out what this letter's about. Paul and, and Timothy, but I think primarily Paul, writes, I always thank my God. Notice how he switched from it's from both of us, but now it's from me, I always thank my God. As I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a nice greeting. Wouldn't you like to get a letter like that sometime? I, I'm so grateful for you. You love God. You love people. You're awesome. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Just at beginning level, I need you to do something. <laughs> I'm praying that there will be some action here, that your partnership in the faith may become effective. It might get into action. And then back to verse 7. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. All right, if we were going to just summarize those few verses real simply, it would be, you're so awesome, I need you to do something, you're so awesome, right? Like, so he's, he's setting him up. There's an appeal, there's an ask that's coming up, and you're, that shouldn't be surprising. He's writing the letter for some purpose. He wants something, all right? Okay, let's keep reading. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, okay, there is a right thing you're supposed to do, Yet, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Okay, there's something he's supposed to do. It's the right thing to do, but Paul is going to give him some freedom, more or less, to do it. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ. You feel the pathos here, right? He's, got, he's playing on their relationship. That I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Okay, we're learning something. We're finding out what this letter is going to be about. It's going to be about a guy named Onesimus who became Paul's son while Paul was in prison, while he was in chains. Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. He's persecuted for this. And this Onesimus became Paul's son. Now, is it likely that he fathered a child in prison? I think probably more likely this means that Onesimus became a Christian. This became my spiritual offspring. I became a spiritual father. He somehow... Somehow we met in prison, who knows exactly how, and now he has become a Christian through Paul's preaching. Formerly, he was useless to you. Oh, he knew Philemon, but not in a good way. They had not a helpful relationship. 
and now he has become useful both to you and to me. Something has changed, and it's going to be part of this appeal, right? Uh, you may, if you may even see in the notes, if you're using a study Bible, that the word Onesimus sounds like the word useful in Greek, so it's kind of a little wordplay going on here, but you don't really need to know that. Then Paul continues to write, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. He used to be, Onesimus used to be with Philemon. He came to Paul. He had encountered Paul in prison somehow. And now Paul finds him very dear. He's my very heart. But Philemon, I'm going to send him back to you, right? What are you going to do? I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me You're supposed to help me, but he could do it on your behalf. Wouldn't that be great? Then you wouldn't have to help me. Onesimus would do it while I am in chains for the gospel. Can you you feel in this letter how Paul is allowing Philemon to save face? How he's like lifting up Philemon's status all the time. You're so great. I, I want you to do this freely. You can do this as a free choice. He's doing me a favor. In fact, it was the favor you were gonna do. So thank you for being so generous in doing a favor through Onesimus, even though you didn't even know it was happening, right? But verse 14, but I didn't wanna do anything without your consent. All right, you're a powerful person. You're gonna choose to act freely here so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but it would be voluntary, you know, more or less voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while, he was separated for some reason. Maybe the underlying reason is so that you could have him back forever. Not forever. No long, now verse 16, no longer as a slave. Onesimus used to be Philemon's slave. Oh, the, the plot gets thicker. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now I know what Paul was asking for, and we can guess why he has to be so delicate. Onesimus seems to have been a runaway slave. He got away from Philemon somehow, and in the first century, this is, this is not a good thing. This is a dangerous thing. Onesimus, has, this crime is punishable in some cases by death, perhaps by beating, maybe in some other terribly unpleasant way. And Paul is asking Philemon to break the law, to go above and beyond what's required, not to do what is socially expected for a man in his position, but to receive back a runaway slave, not as a slave, but as a brother. Now, slavery in the first century was different than the slavery you're imagining in American history. It wasn't racial, for one thing, but that doesn't mean it was a good thing. It was still an oppressive system. It was still a, a thing that used up somebody else's life like property. Different than the tragic sin of slavery in our own country, but still a tragic sin in their world. And Paul is saying, now he's not a slave to you. He's better than that. He's a brother. He's a fellow human being. And how can you own a brother? How could you own a human being? You get that, right, Philemon? So you're of your own free will, You're going to exercise leadership and show everyone how generous you are, and you're going to set a Christian example, aren't you? And then Paul goes on. So, if you consider me a partner, same language he used earlier, right? Your partnership in the faith. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Man, that's kind of a big move, isn't it? Paul is laying down his own relationship, his own status, his own privilege of powerful relationship with Philemon for the sake of somebody else. 
that remind you of anybody? Like Jesus? What a very Christian thing to do, right? If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, and man, he has, and yes, he does, and everybody knows it, then charge it to me. <laughs> charge it to me. And then Paul says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. You can cash this check if you want to. I will pay it back. I mean, not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> well played, Paul. Well played. <laughs> Philemon is probably Paul's spiritual son, like Onesimus, and now you're both brothers. You are in the same status. You have this relationship with one another. How could you own your brother? I do, and then he says, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Again, you have to imagine yourself in this culture where these dynamics of honor and shame and status are going on, and Paul continues to put Philemon in this position to be generous, to be magnanimous. You could do me a favor. You could refresh my heart. You could be of benefit to me. Thank you, Philemon, for this gracious thing that you're about to do. In fact, I'm confident that you'll do it. You'll do even more than I ask. I know you're going to restore him to the relationship that you should have. And then I, I like these last couple lines. And one, more, and one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Now, I love just the, the everyday details of their relationship, but there's also, isn't there two sides to that? Can you feel it, you know? Like on the one hand, again, Philemon gets to play the host. He gets to be the bigger man, and there's all kind of honor in being a host, and everybody's seeing how generous you are, and it's, it's a great thing for Philemon to be able to do that. But I think there might also be a little side here of, and, and I'm gonna come and find out how this went, right? I'll, I'll be there, I'll provide some accountability. And then I think the next line maybe works kind of the same way on to the end of the letter. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greeting, another friend of theirs. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Other leaders in the Christian community, Philemon may well have been acquainted with at least some of them, known other of their names. Uh, Luke, we know, was a traveling companion of Paul. Others probably were also, and Philemon may have known them. And he's saying, the other leaders in the Christian community, we're all cheering for you. We all think highly of you, Philemon. We, we thank God for you in our prayers. We have heard about your love for his people, your faith in the Lord Jesus. You've refreshed the hearts of God's people, and we're all cheering for you. We're praying for you. And they all know about this too, big guy, <laughs> right? And so there's a measure of accountability here. There's a measure of accountability as he says that also. It's this powerful, artful little letter. This, I think, I, think I, I regard it as the first Christian abolitionist text. Paul wasn't in a position to change the structure of slavery in the ancient world, but he used his influence where he had it. He used his influence to speak into the relationships where they actually were playing out, where he had some status, where he had some influence. It's a powerful little letter. We've been learning as we read the Bible together, as we practice reading the Bible, to ask ourselves these simple questions. What are we learning about God? And what are we learning about being the people of God? What are we learning about God from this? Now, I mean, I think that the Spirit of God is living and active and may teach us a number of lessons. You may have a lot of ideas for this, and that's good and healthy. That's why we read the Bible together in community. But I want to share at least one idea with you. I'm learning from this letter that God cares about runaway slaves, that, that God cares about low-status lawbreakers, that God cares about people who are at the bottom of the heap. And 
And that's not a no-brainer. Not everybody thinks that. Not every society is built as if that's true. Not every religion in world history or in the present believes that or teaches that about God. But it's deep in the biblical picture of God. As we're learning to read all these different words of all these different prophets and these ancient stories and the life of Jesus and the writings of the early church, we see this kind of thing all over the place. A couple weeks ago, Danny shared with us that passage from Isaiah chapter 1. And the, and the invitation, the command, the demand for justice that God spoke to his people on behalf of those who were at the bottom. We learned last week as Pastor Angie taught us to read some stories from Jesus' life, the people that he cared about, the people that he ministered to, the people to whom he brought the presence of God, the people that most everybody else was forgetting. And we learned to pay attention to the living Jesus among us, to approach Jesus, not just historically, but in our lives. And now we have here the book of Philemon, this little letter, and we see it happening again, and we are led to believe that God cares about people who are, like, who are or are like runaway slaves. And I think that's beautiful. That moves me to worship. I think that's part of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that God doesn't want to let sin continue to reign in our world and continue to hurt and break our lives and break our communities, but God has brought Jesus into the world and poured out his Holy Spirit to break the bonds, to set the captives free. It's the very thing that Jesus said. And you know what else is amazing about this letter, what I learned about God? is how gracious he is. Because Philemon kind of has been part of the problem. Philemon's a slave owner. He participates in the problem, maybe in different ways, maybe in similar ways to the way that we do when we're caught up in sin in our lives. And yet in God's graciousness, he allows us into his people and says, turn your life around and live the way that Jesus leads us to. This moves me to worship. I think this is beautiful. Some of you have heard me say before that part of my own spiritual practice, part of my own devotional life, each morning I get up and with my prayers I read one psalm from the Old Testament and I read one chapter from these life stories of Jesus, one chapter from the Gospels. And it just happened this last week that I was reading in Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 begins as worship. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul. The song of worship to God. And that psalm says all kinds of things that are praiseworthy about God and Right in the middle, it says, God, you work vindication and justice for the oppressed. Praise you, God, you're good. Not everybody thinks of that, right? This moves me to worship. I think God is beautiful. What are we learning about God? And what are we learning about being the people of God? What are we learning about being the people of God? Well, as a people who reflect the heart of God, the first thing I'm learning as I read this passage, and again, there probably are many, but the first thing I learn is that we are a people, not just persons in the same place, but we are a people. You know, there's this constructive tension between this letter being from Paul to Philemon, but also being from Paul, Timothy, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, from a whole bunch of people to a whole bunch of people, to Philemon and Aphia and Archippus and the whole church that meets in your home. And we're a people. And there's these terms they use for one another, a dear friend, a fellow worker, a sister, a beloved brother, a fellow soldier, right? All of these are terms that speak about being in community together, talk about being in relationship together, that talk about being a people. We're not just persons occupying the same airspace, but we're a people. I know that probably many of you saw on your way in uh, the, the new gear for our name, Community of Grace Lutheran Church. And it's probably, it was probably a big reason that we chose that name because we recognize that we're not just individuals coming to an event. We're not just consumers. We're not just separate. We're a people. We're a community around the gracious 
heart of God. And we get to tell that to the world. We're, we're a people. What else are we learning about being the people of God, being a community that reflects God's heart? I think we're learning, and this one challenges me, but it's hopeful to me too. We're learning that Christianity is not primarily an activity, right? I think sometimes my temptation, maybe yours too, is I, I read about this kind of opportunity for Christians to care about people who are on the bottom of the heap, to care about those who are vulnerable, to try to look out for one another, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And sometimes I'm tempted to think of that as like some additional volunteer activity, right? I need to get involved in some ministry. I need to find some volunteer agency. Maybe if you're ambitious, you want to found some volunteer agency, create something. All of which is good. I'm not opposed to any of that. And I think that can do a lot of good. But in Philemon's case, at least, what Paul was asking him to do was not to find some other activity in the spare hours of his life. How many of you just have hours and hours every week that you're wondering what to do with, right? I need to find some Christian activity to do during this time, and that will be the Christian part of my life. That doesn't make any sense, and it's not realistic in our lives. What Paul's inviting Philemon to do is to live Christianly in the relationships and the structures of his life that's already there, to, to transform the structures and the attitudes, the character and the relationships of his life every day. And so what I think that means is for us as a people, right, that we could see ourselves handling the affairs of our lives Christianly or not Christianly. This is an invitation to live our whole lives as Christians. And if we are a people, then I think it means that we might expect, we might want our brothers and sisters in Christ to have some way to speak into our lives, to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to help us identify the better way, to help us identify the way of Jesus, to help us handle our affairs Christianly rather than not Christianly. And this is the part that might feel a little bit uncomfortable is that for Philemon, his relationship with Onesimus, he could easily have said, this is my private business. <laughs> These are my private affairs. That'd be great. I'm glad that we're friends and we're going to share some stuff and we'll talk and we'll pray. But, but they apparently had access, transparency, the expectation that they could talk to one another about the private affairs of one another's lives and encourage one another to make Christian choices, to live Christianly together. What are we learning about God? What are we learning about being the people of God? And then, of course, the last question we ask ourselves is, how am I going to respond to that? How do I respond to this word? You know, I, I respond in worship. I respond with joy. I respond with encouragement that God is good, that God cares about his people, that God is gracious, that when God sees the injustice and the brokenness that I participate in, that I may sometimes be the victim of, but I think probably my life, maybe a lot of ours, is more like Philemon than it is like Onesimus. I'm encouraged that God cares about that. I want to know that God cares about that stuff. And I'm likewise encouraged that God is gracious enough that in putting his finger on the ways that I'm part of the problem, that rather than just blow me up with a lightning bolt or something like that, that, that God graciously invites me to follow Jesus and be part, of a, be part of a community of grace, be part of a community of joy, be part of a community of love and the power of his spirit and the way of Jesus. I'm encouraged, I'm moved to worship. And then I think we also as a people could respond by following the example of this community. The first thing that we could do is I think we could increase our transparency with one another. Maybe this applies to you in the growth groups that you're a part of or other Christian relationships. We could increase our transparency, which I think means we could lower our walls. We could increase our authenticity to one another, lower the barriers between us. Are, are you uncomfortable when I say that? <laughs> I'm uncomfortable suggesting that. I wonder what you're going to hold me accountable to do now that I've said that. 
And yet I think that is part of the beauty and power of the Christian life. I think we could increase our transparency and lower our walls. And maybe in doing that, that'll give us the opportunity to have some honest conversations with one another, to ask, who are the Onesimuses in our life? What are the places where we're maybe participating in the problem? And how can we care more about the Onesimuses in our lives? Now, I'm going to guess, I'm going to hope that none of you are slave owners, right? So this might feel like this is just a whole thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, so different from our lives. But let me just take it one step farther. Onesimus to Philemon prior to this was a possession, right? This was a money issue. This was a wealth issue. This was a status issue. Now, those are things we do deal with, right? How are we going to handle the affairs of our lives more Christianly rather than less Christianly? It's a a hard thing, right? It's a challenge to us, but it's also a beautiful vision for our lives together. And it's something we know that doesn't happen by our own power, our own lives, human history shows us, so we're not going to figure this out on our own. But beautiful things happen by the power of the Spirit of God, transforming human lives and transforming human communities in the way of Jesus. And I want to pray for that to happen. So let's, let's pray together for God's work forming us in the way of Christ. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the power of your spirit. Thank you for the witness of your people from thousands of years ago, even for this little obscure letter that Paul wrote to Philemon about the affairs of their lives and the, and the life of their church. I pray that your spirit would speak similarly to each of our hearts and to the heart of our community. And that God, that you would encourage us that you would remind us of your grace in the midst of our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion against you. And that as you come to us with mercy and grace in Christ, that we would hear you saying, now come follow me and follow the lead of your spirit to be built into a different kind of people who live by your grace, who are a community of grace, a community of your spirit, a community of your love and power in the world. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.